And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. David Garner. He serves as Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also serving in an administrative role there as well. Uh, Dr. Garner, it's great to have you on with us today. Thank you very much for having me today. I'm glad to be here. You know, uh, one of the things that caught our attention was uh, an article that you had published in the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals magazine called Place for Truth. And um, it was it was an article, a fascinating article, about the covenant. And uh, some folks don't really maybe know too much about the concept, the biblical concept of covenant, but... Um, as I've read a little bit about it myself, Dr. Garner, it seems like it's on every page of Scripture, and it is the, it's like the glue that holds all the pieces together. So I'm wondering if you could get us started today talking about the covenant, and uh, particularly this article here that you've written for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm happy to do that. Thank you. It's, a, it's actually a wonderfully rich topic, and you've already staged it well in the way in which you introduced this discussion from the vantage point of the permeating nature of the idea of covenant in in the scriptures. You know, some, I suppose, might hear the word covenant, and it sounds a bit strange to our ears. It's not something that we use in sort of everyday English in the 21st century, though it does have a, even a long history in our own country in terms of promise and pact uh, with one party with another. But the biblical idea of, of covenant is not just some sort of abstract idea, but it is a marvelously rich conception that is built into the fabric of Scripture itself. The term uh, appears, the word covenant in both Old and New Testaments appears very frequently, but even more frequently in terms of the way in which the ideas and contours of the covenant shape the relationship between Old and New Testament, shape the way in which we understand God's relationship with man as scripture relays it. Let me just maybe begin by a a couple of comments about what the covenant is and why it's so important. There is often, I think, this perception that, uh, and it's not even an intentional one often, but it is one that I think the contemporary church suffers with, and that we think of God in very human terms, which on, on one level, sounds right. We are made in the image of God, are we not? Um, and yet, what we realize is that, that God is the original, and we are the copy. And I think oftentimes we fall prey to thinking that somehow God is like us rather than we are made in his image. And we almost have it backwards, if you will. Interestingly, that actually is at the heart of one of the great sins of the Ten Commandments. When we have other gods other than the one true God, we do so by making gods in our own image rather than submitting to, yielding to, delighting in the one who has made us in his. And covenant is actually a a concept that 
the Old Testament develops for us, beginning in the book of Genesis, in which it is clear that God makes covenants with his people, whom he has made in his image. Well, what is that? Well, let's just think about the the difference between God and man. God is wholly other than we are. He is an infinite creator. He is eternal. He is invisible. He is uh, beyond the scope of our minds, hearts, and lives' capacity to comprehend. So much so that as we look in the history of the, the study of Scripture, we see many talking about what we describe as the creator-creature distinction. And what that means is that God is wholly other than we are. We're, we are creaturely, we are wholly dependent on, uh, we rely on air, for example, to breathe. We rely upon food to eat and water to drink. We are dependent through and through. Well, God is not like that. He, he does not depend on anything outside of himself for his existence. He, he didn't have a beginning like we have a beginning. And, and so the very fact that as Scripture portrays it, that God speaks to Adam and Eve in the garden, that he fellowships with them, is astounding. And the the covenant is very helpful for us in understanding what that is, because the the only way in which we could have any sort of relationship with God is if He is to bow and 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 come down to our level. And the covenant, as Scripture reveals to us, is that tool that God uses to relate to us. It's the the basis of promise. Uh, that God makes a covenant promise with us. It is also the the very contours by which we understand morality. When God calls us to obedience, he does so in a covenantal context. Just think about this. As a creature, how could I ever do anything that would be worthy of praise by the almighty, infinite creator the only way in which that could even possibly make sense at all is for the Creator to bow down and say, here's the way in which I will establish my relationship with you. And as we see in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and beyond through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New, we see that God deals with us according to the structures of a covenant relationship. He initiates He calls us to trust him and to obey him in that covenant relationship. And that's something we see as early as Genesis chapter 2, that God, even though the word covenant, berith in Hebrew, is not used in Genesis 2, the concept permeates the way in which God uh, interacts with Adam in the garden. And it is something that we find explicitly stated then in Genesis 6 through 9, in God's dealings with Abram in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God's dealings with his people, uh, with Moses, covenant as well. Again, um, we see God's dealings with his people through David, the covenant that God makes with, uh, with David. And 
we then see as we get to the, the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah that God promises new covenant. And what do we see on the lips of Jesus when we come to the New Testament that he has described, as we see in the language of the Lord's table, that his work is to be understood by his blood being the blood of the new covenant. And so all of that covenantal language provides the framework by which we understand man created in God's image to relate to God, but also the way in which God addresses man in his fallen and sinful condition, that God meets the demands of his covenant by that mediator of the covenant, Jesus Christ, who is promised in the Old Testament, and he arrives in the New, and his covenantal work in bearing our sin and then becoming that that wonderful Savior by his life, death, and resurrection. He does so by bearing the curse of the covenant and as well by fulfilling the obligations of the covenant so that when we are justified by faith, we are justified by the legal stipulations of the covenant that God has established in his relationship with mankind. And so the covenant actually provides a very non-abstracting biblical concept for us that helps us understand that our relationship with God is not amorphous, it's not sort of ethereal, but it is real because there is real covenant, real relationship covenantally, real sin covenantally, and real redemption covenantally as well. Today I'm talking with Dr. David Garner, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Garner, uh, I'm just thinking a little bit about Adam and Eve, and um, you mentioned the sin. And um, some folks maybe don't realize that um, when Adam sins, all humanity falls with him. Can you comment about that a little bit? Wow, a very, very important concept is the representative function that Adam bears in the history of redemption. Let me explain what I mean by that again, and this is where covenant is very helpful. Um, as Scripture makes clear, for example, in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Adam bears a unique function in God's program in history, where he, as the one with whom God makes covenant in the Garden of Eden, bears the responsibility for faith and obedience in that covenant relationship, not only for him, but for also for all of his descendants. So Adam is a, is a representative figure. If, if I could put it maybe this way, as, as some theologians have put it, he's a public man in the sense that he is, is one that, that represents all of humanity by the one whom God has made from the dust of the ground, as we see in Genesis 2, 7, and Eve from his side, as we see articulated in that same chapter, and Adam's responsibility bore consequences not only for him, but for all of his posterity, for all of his descendants. So significant biblically is the fact that Adam 
in his disobedience, didn't just sin in the sense that that sin was private, but it was very public. And Paul will build his entire argument uh, about the gospel in view of Adam's representative function for all of humanity, so that we are sinful in Adam because we are connected to him. He is our representative. So what do we need in Adam's place but uh, another Adam, uh, a last Adam, uh, a son who is faithful, a son who, as Scripture puts it, is the beloved one in whom the Father is well-pleased. Adam was not that well-pleasing son, and nor were any of those who descended from him, until we have, by the work of the Spirit of God in the womb of Mary, that special gift of the, the one who was born to her, the one whom she was told by the angels to, to, to name Jesus, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the same one whom uh, the Father declares at his baptism, and we see at the Mount of Transfiguration as well, that he is the beloved Son. This is the, the Son that has been promised for thousands of years, the one who would actually do what Adam failed to do in the garden, and that is obey the Father. And so as Adam was a public figure, a representative figure, as Paul argues in Romans 5, Jesus, as the last Adam, is that representative figure who is the one who bears the sins of his people and endures the the curse of of the covenant, even as we we see spoken of as in the language, a stunning language in Genesis 15, where Abram has that vision of the the, the fire passing through the splitting of the animals, which was a, a a declaration by God Himself that He would fulfill His promises or endure the curse of the covenant Himself. Well, what do we find? Well, Jesus, not only as the righteous one, the beloved Son in whom the Father is well pleased, not only does he obey the demands of God's covenant perfectly, but he actually takes on the curse of the covenant so that God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. You see, in this way, we begin to understand the preciousness of the covenant because Jesus' work was not abstract. It was clear, faithful obedience to God's covenant demands and expectations that Adam failed. Jesus bore the actual consequences of covenant curse in our place um, as the sin bearer. But because he is this last Adam whom God raises from the dead and Jesus becomes, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the life-giving spirit. What does Jesus give us? Is the promises of the covenant that were laid out for Adam that he failed to attain and failed to attain not only for himself but for his progeny. Well, what does Jesus do? He obeys the Father, bears the curse of the covenant, and then by his resurrection delivers to us all of those glorious covenant promises so that when we come to God in faith and cast our trust on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we're not doing so abstractly. We're doing so in view of Jesus' 
actual historical life, death, and resurrection in bearing the curse of the covenant and fulfilling the obligations of the covenant so that we, by faith, are aligned to the great covenant keeper himself who has borne our sin, borne our consequences, and represents us before the Father as the one who intercedes for his people for all eternity so that God looks at us just as he looks at Jesus and sees us as his beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased. Why? Because of our representative, Jesus, who is the one who has fulfilled God's covenant in full on our behalf. Well, there's a lot of uh, content here today. I'm talking with Dr. David Garner. He's the Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, David, um, people maybe don't want to, you know, I'm just thinking someone who is tuning across the dial today, perhaps um, never really have thought about the claims of Christ, maybe have not opened a Bible in their life. Um, And so what we've just got done reviewing is the fact that um, we are sinners, and so there's this big space or or, or gulf, if you will, uh, between us and, and a holy God. And we were actually made to have fellowship with this God, and that the possibility of that fellowship was cut off as soon as Adam sinned because he was the representative head for all mankind. Right. And so, and so it should be no surprise then that, okay, here's the reason why I feel so empty. Well, I, I sense there's something more, but something it's just not working out. And it's... um. It's the hope that there is in Christ, and it's a covenantal hope. Um, and so what fascinates me is, is how you've explained this, that th- this God who, who makes covenant with Adam, and then Adam sins, now this God himself absorbs the covenant curse, and he fulfills the, and I'm reading from your article here, he fulfills the covenant demands for those whom he predestined unto adoption. This this is an amazing, um, it's almost like a a divine humility that God would stoop so very low to sinful man and take on the curse himself in Jesus Christ. Wow, I think you've worded this very well. You know, just even hearing you articulate it, just frankly, uh, is is a reminder of... (laughs) How the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what we would describe as gospel, which is good news, it's astounding news. Mm. Um, And here's where the covenant's helpful again. My guilt is not just something I feel. We often confuse guilt and forgiveness with feelings of guilt and feelings of forgiveness. But you see, we are actually covenantally guilty. God made clear in his word what we were to be and what we were to do, and we have objectively failed. Adam failed objectively. We in Adam have failed objectively. Each of us in our own life experience have disobeyed God and not only disobeyed him, delighted in doing so. And and then what do we find is that this God who already has shown himself as an unimaginably kind uh, and and loving God who would, would bend over 
to have relationship with mere creature, this God not only shows that, that willingness to condescend, but as you have well put it, this God is the God who actually is willing in his Son to carry our very sin and to have our sin laid on the shoulders of the singularly righteous Son who did nothing wrong ever. But in his mercy, God said, not only will I establish my covenant with man, I will also bear the consequences of its violation for my people. And so that all who will place their faith, cast their trust, cast their lives, throw their lives upon this Jesus, will enjoy the benefits that he has secured for them by his righteous life death, and resurrection. And so covenant here helps us again move this good news, this this gospel message from some sort of abstract idea of feelings of guilt or feelings of, of goodness and degrees of, uh, of, of goodness that we might envision on some sort of cosmic scale. Well, God has made clear what his will is, and we have violated it, and as I put earlier, we have delighted in violating it, and yet God, in his mercy, shows himself so, so amazingly gracious that he would endure the curse on our behalf in his Son and forgive us our sins and by His the resurrection of his Son grant us all the covenant promises as if we had obeyed him perfectly from the very moment of our conception. <laughs> Amen. Um, David, uh, one last thing, and that is, um, suppose now um, uh, a Christian today is listening and say, wow, you guys are, are describing something that really sounds like um, it's the part of the Scripture I am really, really would like to learn more about, this relationship, this deep a permeating relationship all the way through the Old Testament up through the New Testament. I'd like to read more. Um, are there any uh, books or websites that you could direct our listeners to where they could learn more about this? Well, I yes, a couple of things that I, I would immediately point their attention to is actually a historic um, confession of faith uh, called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can find it online. Um, and there are actually some scripture references that are tied to that, that confession of faith. Um, it's a confession that draws from the 17th century, but it is an extraordinary document. And actually, it is very uh, self-consciously uh, attempting to summarize the whole teaching of scripture. And not exhaustively in the sense of dealing with every doctrine that Scripture addresses, but actually to summarize the primary focus and teaching of Scripture. And seeking to be biblical, the entire structure of the Westminster Confession of Faith is covenantal. Um, And you'll see this actually articulated in Chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. So I would encourage people to look at that. There are old English versions and even more modern English uh, renditions of that that would be useful. Um, O. Palmer Robertson's book, Christ of the Covenants, is another book that I would commend to folks. And if somebody just wants some introductory uh, reading on this, I would also convey uh, my article that you mentioned earlier entitled Fruition, 
which can be found at, at placefortruth.org, um, and folks can, can read that as well. Well, that's very helpful. And so, again, that's the um, Westminster Confession of Faith, which is an older confession, very precise, and I, I've, I've read it myself a number of times. That is just glorious. Um, some of the words are a little bit hard, a little bit older words, but if you can be patient, you'll learn an awful lot. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, this other book, O. Palmer Robertson's book, Christ of the Covenants, and uh, certainly this article. Uh, it's entitled Fruition by Dr. David B. Garner. It's found at Place for Truth. And so uh, that's the that's put out by the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and that may sound familiar to you because we air a couple of their programs regularly here on a Sunday. Well, Dr. Garner, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule and joining our listeners today. It was my joy, and I trust that the discussion today will prove fruitful in their lives. And dear listener, if you'd like to uh, listen to this episode again, it's up on our website. Check us out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. In the top left portion of the homepage is a link to a plain answer. Also a reminder, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Oh